0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Meetings between Canada's Indigenous leaders and Pope Francis have been ongoing all week. The latest was First Nations delegates having their private meeting with the pontiff. To get an update on how things have been going, we're joined now by our Global News European Bureau Chief Crystal Guman. Singh. Hi, Crystal. Hello. Okay, so what is the latest with the private meeting now that First Nations delegates had?
2: Yeah, the First Nations delegation uh, went incredibly long, which is sort of surprising. It was supposed to be a one-hour session, which is what we saw with the Métis delegation, also what we saw with the Inuit delegation, but the First Nations uh, private session with Pope Francis went for about two hours, so an incredible amount of time. There was about 15 uh, delegates as a part of this group. Uh, we do know that one of the individuals was actually supposed to be a part of Monday's um, meeting. It was an indu- um, Inuit delegate, but wasn't able to attend. So he was brought into this session. Um, and so these are not just survivors. We should mention sometimes it's elders or, or sort of support individuals and different community members. So 15 people, two hours with the Pope. It's quite spectacular. Going into that meeting, we heard from a number of delegates saying that they were optimistic, that they were excited. After the meeting, we did hear from uh, a number of the delegates saying that, you know, they thought it it was um, a productive meeting; that it went well. They thought they thought that Pope Francis had been listening and paying attention to them, but there was really no indication as to what we will hear from the Pope tomorrow when all of the delegates get together.
1: And what has the mood been like then, like kind of before and after the meetings? Are the delegates
2: getting like get, hearing what they would like to hear? You know, I think it's it's such an interesting point, and it's so individual based on that one person in the room. Uh, you know, we saw one case uh, on Monday with one of the Métis delegates, uh, Angie, where, you know, she was excited going in. She talked about being hugged by um, Pope Francis, and, you know, she was smiling when she was retelling that story. But in the same moment, we also have to, to realize these are just, you know, these are just regular folks who are, are part of this meeting. They're they're not professional speakers a, a number of them you know are sort of 70 mm-hmm. years plus plus. Um, and so it kind of fluctuates sometimes they're excited sometimes they're they're really quiet and and sort of taking a moment you know some of them get uh, get emotional and then that's why there was a bit of a pause just to give people some time to process what happened to process this meeting and their feelings about it so it really is individual uh, in terms of how they're sort of walking through it with their right. feelings but it really is a mix oh
1: that is so interesting so- So I understand now towards the end of the week they're getting ready where all the delegates will be having a meeting with the Pope.
2: Yeah, all of the delegates, roughly, and and sort of family members, and additional people who have come to support. So it'll be about 170 people who wow, will be okay. in the room meeting with Pope Francis. There'll be sort of another discussion, some more sharing, and really beautiful moments throughout the last couple of days of of you know traditional cultural items being shared, being presented. Of course, we saw the the beautiful um, bead work that was presented on a pair of of, of uh, red elk hide moccasins. It was a gift from the Métis delegate. To Pope Francis, and so they will be sitting down, talking. That's where we could um, hear anything from from Pope Francis in terms of how he's perceived the last couple of days. And will there be an apology? If there is one, will he say it here? Will he announce a visit to Canada?
1: And I understand Canadian bishops have also been a part of this. That's kind of that's been been very on the down low. What is their role?
2: Like, what have you heard? Yeah, they've sort of been taking a, you know, almost a a back seat here, and that was a deliberate um, um, effort from the uh, Canadian bishops. They're here, obviously, facilitating this meeting. Uh, They are in the room with delegates. They see their role. They have said that their role is is very much as a a facilitator. But they have been uh, talking in the media briefings about, you know, their role and how they are, are. They hear the pain. They hear the sorrow. They are. They are hoping to continue to work with Indigenous communities, First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people to sort of, you know, facilitate some healing, but also move forward. They, you know, we've heard that they acknowledge there's there's wide pain and that they want to see healing for um, Indigenous people and for, for non-Indigenous Catholics who have been incredibly moved by, you know, all of the information and, and the, the knowledge that people now have about what happened in those residential schools. All right, more to come. Crystal, thank you. You're very welcome.
1: That's Crystal Gomancing, our Global News European Bureau Chief. And yes, close lots of people closely watching what is happening there with these meetings. Uh, we will be getting an update throughout the news today. So keep it tuned in here for the very latest.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So BC has revealed its five-year 89-point action plan to advance the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. But is five years enough time to reconcile more than 5,000 laws and regulations in this province with what is in UNDRIP? Let's talk about how huge this task is and how BC is going to tackle it. Joining us now is Murray Rankin, the MLA for Oak Bay Gordonhead and the Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Simi. First off, let's talk about the timeline here. Five years. Is that realistic?
3: Well, I think it's uh, unrealistic in your introduction to think we're going to achieve all of those things. This is a plan for doing the specific items that are listed. And, of course, there's other things the government is doing on housing, etc., outside of this plan. But this, is, these, this was co-developed with the First Nation Leadership Council and individual nations and individuals across British Columbia over the last while and it identifies themes uh, uh, in which we want to achieve certain outcomes and 89 actions to do those things. But of course, that's not all uh, that's being being done. And I think it's fair to say not everything would be accomplished within those five years, but we're certainly on track to do a lot of it. We've already been able to do a couple of things that were in the plan because of legislation that was enacted in the last session. But we intend to initiate all the actions within five years. And while yes, the completion of all of those 89 is, uh, is our goal, I think timelines are going to vary by ministry. Every single ministry of government, Simi, has uh, responsibilities under this. uh, It's an uh, all-of-government responsibility. Um, But I think it's a a five years a a realistic framework to uh, have ministries make progress on the actions that are within their responsibilities. And the, the, the good news for the public, I suppose, and is accountability. Under this law, the statute that you referred to, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, every year we have to do an annual report. And it requires us to tell the public how we're doing on each of those actions uh, that we're committed to take.
1: So how do you even begin to tailor our laws and regulations to reflect, you know, more than 200 First Nations groups in our province?
3: Excellent question. So, in addition to the action plan, which, as I say, has uh, is before the public uh, for its review, uh, we also have a responsibility under the Act to do what's called the alignment of laws, separate and apart from the action plan. And so, what we've done is created a secretariat uh, headed up by a very talented public servant, Jessica Wood, who will be responsible, working with First Nations, but is an in within government, to identify those. Uh, statutes that are currently on the books that need to be uh, updated in order to re- reflect our uh, constitutional duties and our legal duties now to uh, t- uh, toward reconciliation, and also to deal with new bills, a process to deal with new bills so that uh, first nations are aware earlier and are consulted more deeply than they are uh, at present that'll be the pr- initial responsibility of this secretariat that uh, will be working with uh, Within government to do that, the the First Nations groups will help us prioritize just which ones we should do first. Should it be twi- child welfare reform? Should it be forestry? Should it be heritage conservation? We hear different things, and so we want to work with them to make sure that we're doing what that, what it, uh, c- accords with their goals for uh, a first action, and then later on other things will roll out. Of course,
1: right? Are you concerned at all about managing expectations with this? Because you know we're doing this. B.C. is going down a, a a road that no other province has gone down before with this kind of level of commitment to this. But there will there still be conflict? And do you feel like people will go, Well, what are we doing all this for if there's still going to be conflict?
3: Uh, you know, there's always going to be challenges in the future. We're not going to agree on everything, but the fact that this was co-developed with, the, uh, with First Nation leadership and to have them in the house, led- yesterday, Simi, all of the leaders, uh, uh, in, you know, to a person, applauding our work, uh, tr- rec- recognizing what you just said, that there's going to be bumps along the road, but there, well, we have a, we've identified outcomes we want to achieve. We've identified a plan to get there. Um, I, I, of course, I think there's going to be, there's going to be an issue of expectation because we don't want to oversell this, but these are tangible things. These aren't. The thing I, I want to stress is this isn't like one of those royal commission reports that's going to sit on a dust uh, on, a, on a shelf and gather dust. This is where every year we have to be held accountable. How did we do for this concrete action? It was Ministry X that was to do it, or Ministry Y. What happened? And every year the public will know whether we're, we've done what we said we were going to do. That's very, very different. Than right. It, other reports
1: so how do you deal with those situations where there will be disagreements such as you know what you see happening with the standoff of the coastal gas pipeline where where does this framework fit into that?
3: Well, this is a, a future oriented document, right? And, and, and so there will be issues like that, no doubt, coming up in the future. But we have, the, what we've created is a table where we work together, we roll up our sleeves to achieve something like this in the context of, you know, the floods, the wildfires, the heat dome, the COVID uh, 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 pandemic, all of that was going on. And of course, the findings at residential school, which re-traumatize so many uh, of our Indigenous partners during the course of our work together on this. To achieve this in that context gives you a sense of what we can do when we roll up our sleeves and work together. So I'm very, very optimistic that we're going to achieve a lot more. Will there be bumps in the road? Yes, there certainly will. And we're going to have conflicts that, have, that are out, that are out there right now, and you've identified one, of course. But I think really this will help us uh, get to a better place.
1: So what do you want British Columbians to know about this? It is huge, it is you know overwhelming, an amount of information in there. But what would you like British Columbians to keep in mind about this whole process?
3: I'd like them to, to reflect on how we need to harness Indigenous rights to, uh, so that Indigenous peoples in our, our province can achieve their full potential and how that will affect all of us as we go forward. I mean, one of the actions is ensuring that people graduate from grade 12 in our province and know the history and the culture of, of Indigenous peoples. I, I wasn't one of those people who knew the history, for example, of residential schools. That won't be possible for our children. And I think we're going to make movement. There's a lot of actions in the Ministry of Education, which I think is where all of this starts. And it really has to, we have to focus on the next generation. I think a, a, a sense of hope that, that many of the leaders spoke of yesterday in the, in the legislature, that this will give. British Columbians, an idea that we're, we're working together. I, I got so many letters, all my colleagues did after the findings at uh, Kamloops uh, uh, Residential School. There's a, a lot of goodwill in British Columbia to move to a better place, and I just want them to know this is one tool, uh, a comprehensive one people can look at and hold us to account for achieving, but it's just the start of, I think, what we're trying to, what we're trying to do in creating a better British Columbia.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning to talk about it.
3: Thanks so much, Simi.
1: Appreciate your time. Murray Rankin is the MLA for Oak Bay Gordon Head and the Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation, talking about the 89-point action plan uh, to advance a declaration on the rights of Indigenous peoples. It's a five-year plan. It's a start for sure, but there is a lot of work to be done.
0: This is
1: Mornings with Simi. Well, since we seem to be on a bit of a theme here about ambitious government plans, let's talk about the federal government's new emissions reductions plan. This is hopefully going to allow Canada to reach its new greenhouse gas targets by 2030. What does it do? Well, it projects that the oil and gas industry needs to cut emissions 42% from current levels, if we're going to do that in just eight years, how do we make all of this happen? Is that even realistic? Well, joining us now is Dr. Thomas Gunton, a professor and founding director of the Resource and Environmental Planning Program at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Gunton, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Timmy. Is that realistic?
4: Well, uh, let's just set some context here. Um, We know we've had a number of plans in Canada before, and uh, we actually have the worst record, uh, one of the worst records of any of the developed countries uh, in the world on climate. And uh, we've never met our targets in the past, unfortunately, and so people have a right to be suspicious about these plans. And uh, I think we all know the the severity of the problems we face uh, if we don't address this, certainly in British Columbia with the floods. And so how does this plan stack up? Um, Well, there's some positive news to me that this is the most comprehensive plan that the government has ever published, and it does lay out a pathway to get to the 40% reduction by 2030. But there are a number of gaps, and I'll just give you a couple of examples Mm -hmm. of, of things we need to still fill in. So on the transportation sector, that accounts for about a quarter of our emissions in Canada, so that's a key sector. The government has established zero emission vehicle targets of uh, 100% by 2035, 60% by 2030, and that's good. And I think every British Columbian will be happy if we can expedite the move over away from fossil fuels, gas, high gasoline prices to, to electric cars. But here's the problem the federal government's plan does not include legislated mandates to achieve those targets, unlike British Columbia and Quebec. So there's no assurance, no mechanism in place to achieve them. They promised that, and they promised it for a while, but still not in place. And the second problem is that these targets apply only to the light-duty vehicle sector, not to the heavy-duty vehicle sector like trucks, et cetera, which uh, are a major part of the problem. So that's, that's one area. A second area is... Electrification. So, yeah, the plan talks about completely decarbonizing, getting fossil fuels out of electricity production. Of course, we've already done that in British Columbia, but uh, uh, the problem here across Canada is that the mechanism is not legal mechanism is not in place to do that. But more importantly, we are now replacing some fossil fuels like coal with other fossil fuels like natural gas. Uh, so we're not fully getting fossil fuels out of electrification. The last example you mentioned in your intro, Simi, oil and gas, 26% of our emissions. So it's a huge part of the problem. And here again, uh, there is no explicit uh, plan to achieve what you mentioned, the 42% reduction from 2,219 in that sector, other than references to eliminating fossil fuels uh, subsidies, uh, methane, uh, reducing methane emissions, uh, these have all been promised before, but uh, the whether we'll, we'll actually implement these is still open. Right. In fact, in the fossil fuel sector, uh, you know we're still building major projects like 21 billion dollars going into Trans Mountain, which is expanding fossil fuel production, not reducing it. So we've got a lot of gaps. Uh, my overall assessment is that you know I'm hopeful, cautiously optimistic. Right. still a lot of work to do.
1: You know, Dr. Gunn, what really struck me with what you were saying there is that on the one hand, you said this is the most comprehensive plan that we've gotten, and yet there are still these very big gaps that you talk about.
4: Exactly. And uh, so the government has said it's committed to filling these in, but we've heard this many times before And whether it's going to do it or not. And I mentioned one another huge, huge gap, of course, is on the climate adaptation side, because... Even if we are successful, Simi in in achieving our goals, other countries are successful, we're still looking at a warming uh, over two degrees. That's double what we are right now. And we know in British Columbia the impacts of that. And so uh, even if we're successful, there's going to be a lot of climate change uh, and we have to have adaptation plans to figure out how to manage that. How are we going to deal with the floods? How are we going to deal with the fires and, and the heat domes? So Uh, there's a lot of work to do on climate adaptation. So we're moving in the right direction for the first time really ever. Uh, Some of the policies are in place. We have never recorded a a reduction in emissions in Canada. And I think this plan will start to do that. But boy, we still have a long way to go.
1: So when you say you hope this plan will start to do that, how soon will we know that this plan might actually be working?
4: Well, uh, fortunately, the plan, one of the, the elements of the plan is to set some sort shorter term goals around 2024, 2026. And so there's some short term targets. So we'll know within two or three years, uh, what's beginning to happen. Uh, We can also see what's happening in terms of how many people are buying electric vehicles, um, the switch to heat pumps uh, to get uh, fossil fuels out of heating our houses. Um, So that's beginning to happen now. And so we should be able to see some of the positive impacts in, in the next uh, the next few years. But it requires also every British Columbian uh, to to pick up and join in on this and, you know, take a look at your next car, uh, even if it's a used car, take a look at I a think 0 emission vehicle.
1: I think they're uh, trying, Dr. Cutton, but it's we're, so we're hard trying, right yeah, now. Yeah. Right
4: now, there's a big shortage of them, unfortunately. But uh, uh, so the transition's there, and, and every British Columbian can pitch in and Uh, as I say, I remain cautiously optimistic, uh, but there's a lot of work to do.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning.
4: Okay. Thanks very much, Simi.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, you don't need me to tell you that allergy season is underway for so many people out there. I mean, I feel it. I've talked to so many people who say, oh, sorry, just allergies. And especially when you're wearing, well, have been, wearing the mask in the past, it was so challenging. And it does feel like it's another bad year. Well, a couple of recent studies have shown that, yes, allergy season is potentially getting worse. They found an increase in pollen concentrations over the last Thirty years, and they've also found that the pollen season has lengthened by an average of twenty days or more over that same time period. What is happening? What are we all allergic to? What are we seeing out there? Well, joining us now is Dr. Joanne Young, who's a allergist and a clinical immunologist. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Cindy. Are you noticing this? Are more and more people? Do you think complaining about allergies? Oh yes, absolutely. I think that
5: um, a couple of things are happening. Um, because of climate change and global warming, we've been having more extreme weather, and that really enhances pollination. And so the pollen counts are much higher. But also, over the last two decades, I think an increasing percentage of people are developing allergies, and it's very much a developed country um, developed country and um, hyg- hygienic environment type of phenomenon. What do you mean by that? So the hygiene hypothesis uh, states that um, in a very developed and clean environment, sanitary environment, where our children are growing up in the city, not exposed to animals and dirt, that um, our immune systems get busy in another way if they're not fighting uh, bacteria and parasites. And so we are seeing that in the Western world, there's an increased incidence of allergy development and hence, as these kids grow older into their 20s, 30s, and 40s, they have a more, uh, an increased tendency to develop pollen allergies as well.
1: So it's something that you might not have had, like I've had it all my life, even when I was a little kid, but what you're saying is like adults develop allergies now, later?
5: Oh, yeah, so absolutely. If people who have not grown up with allergies, they can develop it for the first time in their 20s, 30s, to 40s.
1: Ooh, that would be very frustrating. Uh, what about allergy treatments then, Doctor? Has, has that changed at all? I feel like we're still kind of dealing with the same kind of treatments that we always have.
5: Yes, well, the first-line treatments, meaning the things that you can buy yourself over the counter, have remained about the same over the years. There are more options now for kids just because of the long-term safety data. But we are getting into more fancy treatments as well. So this would be beyond the first line antihistamines that you would use yourself. Uh, But speaking to a specialist, you can, um, there are, you know, improved nasal sprays and eye drops. And then there's more targeted treatment called allergen immunotherapy where, um, I mean, historically it's been only allergy shots. But now we have tablets that you melt under the tongue that desensitize you to uh, whatever you're allergic to. So that's a great option for people who have experienced allergies for years.
1: Okay, I'm interested in that. I had not heard about that one before. Mm -hmm. But what would you say are the most common allergies that you're seeing?
5: So right now, if you're feeling allergies and it's been happening to you for the last four to six weeks, it's tree pollen. Um, Here on the West Coast, we have an abundance of trees. Most markedly alder and cedar are really high counts, like historically just the, the last few years have been very high counts. And so that's what you'd be feeling right now. Later on in the spring and summer, um, the tree pollen start to fall and grass pollen, lawn mowing season is what gets a lot of people and that's your quote unquote hay fever. And so people who have seasonal allergies, but feel fine right now, they may be allergic to grass and they'll, they'll have their turn in May and June.
1: And can it change for you as well? Because, you know, maybe when you were younger, you would get hay fever and then later on you're allergic to trees. Does that happen over time?
5: Yes, yeah, so you can. Um, it's called the atopic march or the allergic march where the immune system goes through stages and phases in your life. And so you can develop an increased number of allergies to different types of things. But some kids and young people are also lucky. They may become desensitized. The body might become used to it and their allergies might get better but for the most part most people have allergies for a couple of decades and they can have their allergies change over time.
1: Any advice for people then Dr. Young about how we can deal with this is there anything we can do if the our environment is it's getting worse for us out there what can we do?
5: Yeah so I mean the most basic type of avoidance it's, it's something to think about I mean a lot of people are able to work at home now not needing to uh, commute and be outdoors but staying home on a beautiful day like this is not always the best solution especially for kids who we you know we should be encouraging to be active in the great outdoors so beyond that I think being proactive about your symptoms one of the best things that and simple things that you can do is really taking a 24-hour antihistamine on a daily basis for really the next two months or so and I think not overthinking it and saving the antihistamine for just really bad days or when you feel really rotten and being proactive and taking a daily is the best approach a lot of people want to be minimalist when it comes to medications but antihistamines um, are safe they're effective they don't have long-term side effects we're really quite lucky we have them as a tool.
1: Do you, do you need to, like, take them for a couple of days or a week or two to build up anything in your system so that they're really effective?
5: No, they work pretty instantly. They work within an hour or two. But if you start taking it when you're already congested, your eyes are watery, you have a lot of mucus, it will take a couple of days to have all that dry up because you've been building up that inflammation for weeks already. So be patient with it um, there should be some instant relief, but you may not see the maximum benefit for the first five to seven days.
1: All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for letting us know that we are not imagining things that our allergies are getting worse out there, right? That's right. It's not just you. Everyone else is feeling it too. Oh, that's good to know. Well, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> My pleasure. That's Dr. Joanne Young, who's an allergist and clinical immunologist talking about allergy season. Yes, you're not imagining things out there. Recent studies have shown that there's a 21% increase in pollen concentrations over the last 30 years. They studied more than 800 sites across North America and found that. So there is more pollen that is in the air. And then what they also found is that pollen season is longer now by an average of 20 days or more Over that same time period. So yes, so many of us are definitely suffering.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, we know that more than 700,000 people in this province don't have that regular family doctor. So what are all of those people doing instead? Well, they're probably going to walk-in clinics or urgent care clinics. Maybe they're going to emergency every time they have a problem or they're not even seeing a doctor. Let's talk more about this now with our contributor, Raji Sohal. Hi, Raji.
6: Hi, Simi. Yeah, I actually did not have a doctor for many years. Um, And to be honest, it wasn't a big deal for me. I thought, oh, I don't need to see the doctor, so I don't need one. Then, of course, I had children, and I realized the importance of one, of someone who can follow you right through the years and, uh, you know, get to know you and understand your history And I know lots of people are still in that boat of still looking, still on the lists, and they're frustrated. People think, like, I live in BC, I live in Canada, why don't we have enough doctors? Now, an obvious part of the problem that we've talked about a little bit on the show before is that a lot of doctors are retiring age. So they're just leaving the practice and they're they're leaving in huge numbers for that reason and leaving a gap behind. But a lot of GPs have found the system, you know, the one that requires you to run a business at the same time as being a doctor, just unattractive. So they leave for specialty practices or they just want to get out altogether to avoid that business of running a clinic. Uh, you know, running a clinic is a different set of skills than being a doctor but then another issue is pay and that's a complicated one because some doctors will say they they think they do earn enough but that the problem is the pay model where they're incentivized to see so many more patients which means less one-on-one care and attention for the patient but ultimately more work for the doctor and i talked to uh dr katherine smart she's a president of the canadian medical association she said that not having a family doctor, it affects an individual's health, certainly over time, but it's also an economic issue. Because when people develop health conditions that could have been prevented if treated, they become ultimately a burden on the healthcare system.
7: You know, we know that over the long term, having access to a regular primary care provider has significant impacts on people's health. So people that don't have that type of care are more likely to have their chronic issues not optimally managed. And and that means more suffering for that individual over time. And for the system, it means more costs. There's also, I think, huge impacts on people just in terms of the personal stress it causes, you know, worrying about what am I going to do if I develop a chronic health problem? Where am I going to get my prescription refilled? Why is there nobody in the health system who really knows me or knows my story or that I have that relational connection to? I think those have all sorts of other implications for people's wellness uh, that we don't always measure.
1: Yeah, I think that's very, very true. It's that I think a lot of people just avoid going to the doctor.
6: Yeah, that's uh, it's a sad truth about this. That some people will just avoid it altogether. Um, and, and it it's more than an inconvenience to someone already when they have a doctor sometimes to go see the doctor. So if you don't have one and you have a nagging issue, but you're still getting by, you might not get seen at all then. And she told me that things have, you know, there's always been a shortage of doctors in BC. It's something that we've dealt with before. But that now we're at a tipping point. And I asked her, well, what changed?
7: I think what's changed over time is that no longer is practicing family medicine in a longitudinal way, meaning, you know, you take on a practice and these are your patients. It's become increasingly unappealing to newer physicians because of all the systemic issues in our healthcare system that have gotten worse over time. So absolutely, we've always had challenges in terms of having enough access to care. But I think what's really different right now is when you talk to newer doctors who are training in family medicine, Many of them are choosing to do other things in family medicine, whether that's short-term locums to fill in for other doctors, whether it's practicing hospitalist medicine, whether it's getting into more um, specialized areas such as palliative care, surgical assisting, those types of things. That's what people are choosing to do because the system of care that we have has become so challenging for family doctors to work in, in, in an independent practice that it's just no longer drawing people into the system.
6: Yeah, Simi, The cost of running a business has ballooned too, right? If it balloons for your regular entrepreneur, that means yes, it also ballooned for doctors running a family practice, and and real estate has gone up. That affects them employing people to work for you, all of that stuff. Uh, but payment for physicians remains relatively static over time. And I, I wondered, like, is there even an ideal healthcare model that uh, BC or even the rest of Canada should be modeling itself after? And and Dr. Smart said it's team-based care. And she said that we already have great examples of it throughout the country, but that it needs to be scaled up. And then I asked the obvious question of, okay, well then why aren't we scaling it up?
7: I think there's been a few barriers to scaling it up. I think the biggest barrier has been cost. It means that the that the government itself has to invest in the infrastructure of primary care. So traditionally, The infrastructure of primary care has been paid for by doctors because they're the ones that fund and operate the offices in the community where people receive care. When we're talking about moving to team-based care, that then means that the government needs to bear some responsibility for the costs of providing that service, you know, the physical space, the other healthcare professionals that work in those spaces. So I think it's really about what our governments are willing to do in terms of how they prioritize funding and spending on healthcare.
1: That's a real change in the model that they're talking about there, Raji. Yeah, and a costly
6: one. And what she kind of alludes to there is that taxpayers then, right, have to get on board too. We have to go along with spending more on healthcare. Healthcare is already so expensive. We saw what happened during the pandemic. Like, would we be comfortable with our taxes increasing incrementally well quickly in order to to achieve that uh, team based care that she talks about? But, you know, I'm I'm currently in a kind of system that seems uh, for my family doctor kind of team based. Yeah. And it's incredible. It's life changing. And I just love that I don't have to worry yeah. Ever about seeing the family doctor. And it just seems like something that we all deserve in BC. It
1: certainly does. Raji, thank you. Thanks to me. So, Raji Sohal there. And this is a story that really resonates with a lot of people. I have to put a shout out here to anybody. I, I, I want to see if anybody can help. Uh, This person who has emailed me, okay? So if anybody can help this person, please email me, simmy at cknw.com. Here's the problem Two months ago, uh, Cynthia's adult daughter was diagnosed with pulmonary arterial hypertension. So treated at VGH. People at VGH said she needed a family doctor, but she didn't have one. And they have been searching, and they have been searching and they haven't been able to get one, even an interview with a doctor to have somebody take her on. And so they're hoping, but the problem is that in order for her to be treated properly by the specialist at VGH, they need to liaise with a family doctor, and she can't find one. Now, if somebody can help her get a family doctor, please email me, simi at cknw.com, and then I can hopefully help Cynthia out, but we'll see what we can do on that one.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We struggle with the challenge of our salmon runs in BC from one river system to the next, it seems like. Pacific Ocean salmon have dramatically different results. Why is that? Well, the largest ever salmon research expedition is underway in the north part of the Pacific Ocean. This is the big issue that they are hoping to tackle Joining us now to talk more about that is Lori Whitecamp, who's a research fisheries biologist at the Northwest Fisheries Science Center and was the chief scientist aboard the ship that was looking at this. Uh, Lori, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Well tell me a bit about this expedition. What is it doing?
0: So we had four ships out across, spread out across the North Pacific. All each ship we did. Essentially identical things, and we're really trying to study not only the salmon that are out there. So, we're a lot of the focus is actually catching the salmon with big trawl nets, but then also understanding the entire ecosystem that supports them. So, who, what, what is available food wise for them to eat? Who are the competitors? Are there predators out there, etc.? So, we're really trying to look at the entire picture of what is occurring with these salmon at a time. Of their life cycle when we know very little.
1: So what do we think will this help us with? If we know more about this, how will it help us figure out why they do well in some river systems and not in others?
0: Yeah, so a lot of the recent, so since since kind of 2015, we've just seen these crazy, unpredicted uh, returns of salmon. Sometimes they're really low, that much lower than we thought. Other times, uh, particularly Bristol Bay sockeye returns, they've been really, really high, like off the charts. And and we really don't understand why this is occurring. So the idea is that we can go out and look and see what's happening to these salmon, then we can use that information to help predict how many are going to return. So we're, we're not so surprised uh, when we find out, wow, there's hardly any fish coming back or, wow, we got a huge return. So it's, it's really trying to help management um, by better understanding what is going out in the ocean,
1: is there a lot of differentiation when it comes to management that is having this kind of a huge impact?
0: Um, it's not so much differentiation it's just that for salmon management, the very first step is estimating how many fish are going to come back for your particular run, and then they crank it through all these models and they design the fisheries that will target some some fish. That are you know from strong populations, other avoid other populations that that really can't take that much fishing pressure. So this fundamental first step is how many fish are going to come back, be able to predict that. And so what we're trying to do is help with those predictions because they really haven't been working very well no. in the last uh, five or seven years. Yeah.
1: No, they have not. It feels like it's all over the map.
0: Yes. Yes. No. And you don't want the surprises, whether you're, you know, trying to set fisheries or you're a cannery or, you know, processing how many how many cans are you going to buy? Uh, it really makes a big difference in having good forecasts. And so we're really trying to help with that step and and not just help, but also, you know, in the future, the idea is that we can look at satellite temperatures out in the ocean and be able to say, whoa, that looks Good for salmon, or whoa, that looks bad for salmon. For my particular stock, we don't really even know where exactly particular stocks like Fraser River sockeye. We don't know where it is out in the ocean. We have a general idea, but this study will really help us understand. Wow, they're really they're in places that we didn't realize. And and you know, yes, they're doing well, or no, they're not at, at this time of year, which is when we think there's there's a lot of mortality. It it really is make or breaking uh, each year class.
1: Right, Lori. I'd say that kind of surprises me, right? Because the Fraser River salmon sockeye run is so critical, and it's huge, and it has fluctuated wildly in numbers in years, and we've never before done the research to
0: try to figure out exactly where it is out in the ocean. So there's been a lot of research in the high seas uh, by Canada, U.S., Japan, and Russia. Um, a lot of it started in the 50s, and and through recently. One of the big differences with this year is that we have new tools, namely genetics. So we can catch a fish out in the ocean and we can tell you what stream it came from. And that's because salmon return to their home stream, right? They're known. They come back within meters of where they were born. And because of that, each stock of salmon is genetically distinct because they always return to where they came from. And so using that information all the way around the Pacific Rim, we can now catch a fish, take a little fin clip, and be able to tell you exactly where it came from. And that's really, really powerful. We haven't been able to do that before to the extent that we can now. And so it allows us to look at a stock-specific basis of where are these fish, how are they doing. Uh, That's that's a really, really powerful tool.
1: Also, that's amazing what you just described there.
0: Yeah. No, it's very cool. It is very cool. So where
1: are we at with that work? What more needs to be done?
0: So the, we are, there's, there's actually most of the ships are back at port, except we ended up with some extra money from, we had a a Russian charter that ended up getting cut short, as you might imagine, because of political situations. So we're using that money to put one more ship out there for another two weeks and that we're just gearing up. In fact, I'm driving a net up to get on a barge to go to Dutch Harbor uh, this afternoon. And so we're going to have one more ship out there to kind of fill in some of the holes that we weren't able to do it uh, sample. And then we'll start putting all our data sets together and try and look across the whole thing. There's actually some really good information on the It's called the IYS International Year of the Salmon website that has some maps showing where the ship has been, and and they will be posting some of this preliminary data uh, on it. But there's a lot. We brought back a ton of samples, so things like diets, you know, looking and seeing what the fish were eating, how quickly are they growing based on a variety of measures, Uh, were they fat? You know, did they have extra fat reserves or were they really lean? Uh, all kinds of stuff that, that will happen as well as this genetic analysis.
1: That is so cool, Lori. It is really cool. Uh, so it, when, is, it is really. When yeah. do you think some of this will be usable data that we can actually kind of meaningfully apply to how we determine which salmon are going where?
0: Um, so I think that the, by the summer, we will have a pretty good idea of where this you know, different stocks are in the ocean that'll help us. And then it's really digging in. And and I don't think this single survey by itself is really going to, you know, be uh, totally change everything. But we're building on two previous surveys in 2019 and 20 when we're out there at the same time in the Gulf of Alaska. Uh, and then as samples come in and we understand the entire samples get processed and we, uh, understand the entire system, then we can really start putting these together. And And I think it's going to be a couple of years down the road, but, but it should help and, and it should be informative.
1: Oh, I could think it would be. All right, Lori, thank you. Thank you. That was so interesting. Lori Whitekamp is a research fisheries biologist at the Northwest Fisheries Center. Was a chief scientist aboard this expedition to learn more about Pacific salmon when they're out in the ocean and why uh, that makes such a difference about which river run goes and does well versus others.